I am holding in my hands a book that gave me a tremendous amount to think about and uh, on all kinds of different levels, professionally and personally as well. A book called The Abundant University, Remaking Higher Education for a Digital World. This is written by someone who in a sense, lives and works in the world of higher education. Uh, Michael D. Smith, who is J. Eric Johnson Professor of Information Technology and Marketing at Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz College of Public Policy and Management in Pittsburgh. In this book, Professor Smith is calling all of us, including those of us who live and work in higher education, to try to be, in a sense, brave enough to imagine a different sort of world of higher education, one which is far more inclusive. And even if that remaking of higher education might mean, in a sense, the the elimination of some of what we maybe hold most dear about what our, our current colleges and universities are all about. It is Michael D. Smith's contention that with all that has come about, technologically speaking, that has altered so many uh, avenues and, and, and vistas of our modern society, there is no reason to blithely assume that higher education will not and should not also change. And it could, in fact, change in ways for the better in terms of society as a whole, and in particular making higher education and its abundance available to a, a far wider swath of the public. Uh, it is an intriguing notion and one I have really appreciated exploring in this really interesting book published by the MIT Press. Uh, again, the book is titled The Abundant University, Remaking Higher Education for a Digital World. And uh, Professor Michael D. Smith, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Greg, it's great It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Uh, I Most of our listeners know this. Uh, probably you should know this as well that my full-time job is actually as a associate professor of music at our, our local liberal arts college. So that's what I was sort of hinting at in my introduction and oh, saying that this book was very striking to me on, on a couple of different levels. And uh, I should also hasten to add that uh, you don't have to be somebody who teaches in higher education or even is particularly interested in higher education to, to find this book really, really fascinating. So uh, I just wanted to be uh, upfront and clear about that uh, personal context for me. Oh, well, thanks. Actually, that, that makes it all that makes this discussion all the more interesting, honestly, um, you know, to, to get to get your perspectives on on what you're seeing. Absolutely. So. The title of the book, The Abundant University, is chosen quite deliberately, although at a glance, of course, I don't think it will make a lot of sense to people. And, of course, the point is to get people to open up the book and explore it further. Uh, so we should maybe point out a, a, a framing of this topic that you, that, that you use that I find quite intriguing, namely that our current world of higher education, our system of higher education, which in so many ways has largely been in place for centuries, uh, is based on a model of scarcity. And so your title, The Abundant University, uh, proposes a different kind of higher education. Let's begin, though, with that notion of, of, of a model of scarcity. In what way do you see our current higher education system built on scarcity? 
Well, I'm, I'm arguing there, there are three key scarcities that define, in many ways, a university's power in the marketplace. The first is the powerful universities are the ones who control access to the scarce seats in the classroom. The second is powerful universities control access to the scarce faculty experts. And the third is powerful universities control access to the scarce valuable credential. Um, and, and in many ways, you know, that, that's what's defined our structure of power in, in the university. Now, what I'm trying to argue in the book is what, what digital technologies do is they make, they make scarce things abundant, right? So, so think about Spotify uh, and compare it to the CDs and, and uh, cassettes that you and I grew up with, right? Um, in, when, when we were growing up, the, the, the only music you had access to was either what was being played on the radio or what you had in, you know, on, on CDs. Now, for 10 bucks a month, we can get access to all the world's music um, at, at the touch of a fingertip. And, and not only that, it's personalized to us, right? That's abundance. Um, what I'm trying to argue in the book is that I think we're going to see digital abundance coming for higher education. I think it's going to change how we, how we do work. And I think that we in higher, higher education ought to want to embrace that um, because of what it's going to mean for the students who are excluded from our pricey campuses today. Right. And by the way, uh, one thing leapt out at me in the preface of the book uh, when you kind of uh, posed this question, what if abundance could finally replace the model of scarcity mm. that has prevailed for so long at colleges and universities? Uh, what if new technologies could allow us to understand the varied backgrounds, goals, and learning styles of our students and could provide educational material customized to their unique needs? What if we could deliver education to students via on-demand platforms that allow them to study whenever, wherever, and whatever they desire instead of requiring them to conform to the broadcast schedule of today's education model. As somebody in broadcasting that really leapt out at me, but I think it's a I think it's a really great picture of of the way we do this right now that that if somebody wants to uh take my opera history class at Carthage College, uh right now, I mean, unless, you know, for some reason they've arranged something else, they have to show up in Johnson Art Center 209 at 135 Monday, Wednesday, Friday because that is when I am in effect broadcasting that class and uh and of course uh, that that now seems like a very in terms of 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 watching television and programs that seems like a really antiquated way to do of doing things and you're suggesting that there is something equally antiquated about that so-called broadcast model when it comes to delivering education exactly i think you know, we're, we're comfortable with it. So I don't think we see the opportunity here, but imagine all the, all the kids who would benefit from your opera history class, who just can't show up at Carthage, at Carthage college, uh, you know, at, at the time you're teaching it, or who might benefit from my class and, and can't show up in Pittsburgh at the time I'm teaching it. Um, broader than that, you know, what, what we know in the, in the learning literature is that students all don't learn at the same pace. Um, you know, some, some students take a little bit more time to grasp the concept. Some students, uh, you know, gra- grasp it more quickly or may have already learned it. 
in in the classroom, I've got to move the class forward at at exactly the same pace. So I'm trying to hit the mean of the the learning rate, and I know I'm leaving some some people behind, and I know some people are bored and could could, could go forward faster. Wouldn't it be cool if we could develop a system that could serve the whole population, not just the middle? Mm. One of the things you touch about in terms of the reluctance of many of us in higher education, I will freely and honestly admit to being one of them that, that uh, in some respects bridles at this idea, pulls away from it in some fear, self-serving fear, if you will. But, but one of the reasons why maybe that is understandable, perhaps even forgivable, is the fact that so much of our system of higher education has been in place and largely unchanged for such a long time. And I think it, it, it is yeah. worth spending just a moment just, in a sense, quantifying that, how long our system has been in place and in comparison to so many other things in our world, in our life, in our society that have changed, dra- sometimes drastically, over that same period of time. Yeah, a, a lot of this book was motivated by research my colleague and I had done in the entertainment industry, and a lot of that research was motivated by this wonderful quote in 2015. Um, we had the head of home entertainment at one of the big six studios come and talk to our class, uh, 2015, and my colleague asked him, are you at all worried about the threat that Amazon, Netflix, and Google might pose to your business? And he said, you know what? My business is different. The same six studios have dominated my business for the last hundred years. There's a reason for that, and that's not going to change. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, I heard the president of Ohio State University get asked almost the same question. And what I heard him say was almost the same answer. You know what? My business is different. The same 60 universities have dominated my business for the last 500 years. There's a reason for that, and that's not going to change. I mean, that's that's how old the system of higher education is and how established it is. It's perfectly reasonable to think that's never going to change. Um, I just wonder whether we have a new set of technologies right now that could allow us to change it and could allow us to change it for the good, for the many students we know we're leaving out. Hmm. We're speaking with Michael D. Smith, author of The Abundant University, Remaking Higher Education for a Digital World. Uh, since it is of paramount interest to you, we should spend some time talking about this notion of of access and, and in particular, lack of access. And uh, you 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 tell a, a, a interesting story in the book about a, a a famous author. I'm not now not now re, I'm remembering not remembering the the name, but a, a famous author who uh, teaches a, a, a writing course at, I think, Princeton. And oh, it's, Steve, Steve Levitt at Chicago. Uh, uh, is, or, or no. Is this, or is this, uh, no, the, yeah. I'm sorry, this is, this is uh, Joan... Um, Joyce, uh, Joyce Carol Oates, I just found it. Joyce Carol Oates. Joyce Carol Oates, yeah. yes. So teaches this course okay. in, in Princeton, and in sort of describing how <laughs> utterly impossible it is for almost anybody to get into this small <laughs> class, this small workshop class, you give us a lot of other staggering numbers about the tens of thousands of applicants that Princeton receives every year and the relatively yeah. tiny number of, of students who are ultimately uh, ultimately admitted to Princeton. So, so 
when it comes yeah. to trying to get into a place like Princeton, we're talking about a very severe uh, limit of access, even to people who have the resources to even consider going to some place like that. Uh, but yeah. tell us about the bigger picture of lack of access to higher education, because of course, not every college is Princeton. Yeah, this is, I mean, the, the bigger picture. So this book, I started out writing it as a book about just technological disruption, which is what I know. Um, about halfway through, I, it, it turned into a book about social justice. Um, and one of the big things that, that, you know, caused me to make that shift was uh, there's, there's an economic study done by a guy named Raj Chetty at Harvard. And what he found is if you're a kid born into a family in the top 1%, you've got a one in, one in four chance of going to an elite college, highly selective college, um, one in four. If you're a kid born into the bottom 20% of the income distribution, you've got a one in 300 chance of going to the same college. And what I've been saying to my colleagues is, hey, I'm trained as an economist. If, you know, so I believe in the efficient allocation of scarcity. If we genuinely believe that rich kids just happen to be 77 times more likely to be capable of an elite education, we're doing fine. But if we don't believe that, and I don't know anyone who does, then this is a terrible way of allocating access to the scarce resource of higher education. And frankly, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves for defending. Hmm. Um, that's the, you know, like I've, I've had three kids go through college, uh, you know, and over and over you get over and over again, you see how the finger of wealth places its hand on the scale of, of access. Um, if we're talking about access to BMW cars, maybe I'm okay with that, but not access to higher education. To something um, as fundamental we, we as that. Desperately. Hmm. Exactly. Something as fundamental to advancement. Um, we ought to be desperately seeking ways to make access more abundant or more available to the people who are capable of it and deserve access to it. And, I, and what I see from my colleagues is we're, we're protecting the existing system. I don't think we're doing it maliciously. I just don't think we've thought carefully about it. Right. At one point in trying to explain the, let's call it the intractability of, of many in the current system, you, uh, you say it uh, at one point in higher education, we tend to get confused uh, when it comes to our model and our mission. You say our model mm. has been s so stable for so long that we have conflated it with our mission, and we therefore see any threat to the former as a threat to the latter. So what happens when we are clearer about those two? That is, what happens to this whole discussion when we ha make a clearer distinction between our mission in higher education versus the model with which we have delivered that education? Yeah. Um, the, the, the example I give in the book is the, is the entertainment industry. I, I, yeah, um, I saw and my colleague and I saw the, the entertainment industry initially oppose technological change, you know, oppose uh, Spotify, oppose uh, Netflix, because they rightly saw it as a threat to their model. They, they saw it as a threat to their, you know, DVD sales, CD sales. Um, and at some point, we saw them recognize that their model was different than their mission, Right. My mission as an entertainment company is creating great entertainment and getting that entertainment in front of an audience. 
Um, it's not selling shiny plastic discs for 20 bucks a pop. And I think it was that realization that allowed them to do all this, all the amazing things they're doing in terms of, you know, creating their own platforms, Disney Plus, Max, Peacock, uh, blowing up their business model to make this work. Hmm. The parallel I see in higher education is what's, what's our mission, friends? If our mission is helping rich kids get a leg up in the job market, then, yeah, we're doing great. But that's not our mission. If our mission is giving access to students from all socioeconomic backgrounds, we ought to look at ourselves squarely in the mirror and say, we're failing. Hmm. Um, and I hope that recognition of failure ought to give us the energy that says, I'm willing to blow up the way I've done it for the last 500 years because I care that much about making access to education abundant and, um, and available to people who today we're leaving behind. So much of this is wrapped up in the advancements in technology that, as we've already talked about, have radically reshaped uh, other 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 parts of of modern life, and 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 you see higher education uh, being changed and needing to change, and and I think part of what your book argues is the the folks in higher education, uh, it would be wise for them to, in a sense be in the driver's seat overseeing that change, I mean, and, and trying to safeguard the most important aspects of higher education uh, uh, if and when it, it, it tilts into this new model. Talk for a moment about the kind of research that you and others have done uh, into the whole matter of delivering education uh, through some of these technological tools that became, of course, indispensable during the COVID-19 pandemic. What were some of the things that you discovered in, in your research in terms of what was most effective, in terms of uh, helping you see the full potential of, of some of these tools? Yeah, one of the, one of the big ahas for me was... Um, my my daughter um, my daughter was president of the Steminist Club in her high school. So take take STEM take feminism and combine it with STEM, and you've got STEMinism. Um, and and she wanted to take um, AP Physics in her senior year. And her high school says you can't take AP Physics because you don't have AP Calculus. You can't take AP Calculus because you don't have Pre Calc, and you can't take Pre Calc because we're not offering it this summer. So I'm sorry. Um, and, and that wasn't a satisfying answer to my wife and I. And we, um, I, because of the research I do, I knew that there's a platform called Outlier that offers an online calculus course that gives you credit at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and, you know, we basically made the argument that if, if our daughter passes Outlier's calculus, calculus, Outlier's calculus class and uh, gets credit at the University of Pittsburgh, are you really telling me that's not good enough for your high school um, Calculus. Anyway, we, we won that argument. But the way Outliers Calculus class is taught online, um, it's taught by three different professors, and they each teach it in their own voice um, with their own examples. And, and you can choose to take the lecture from any of them, um, and you can even mix and match. And what I discovered is you know, my daughter immediately gravitated towards Hannah Fry, towards, towards the, the one female faculty member of the three. Um, and, and I was mentioning this to a colleague and she said, Oh, Mike, there's a bunch of research showing that, um, in general, women perform worse than men in STEM classes. And that difference goes away when the class is taught by a woman. And by the way, the same thing is true 
for underrepresented minorities tend to perform worse, and that difference goes away when the class is taught by someone who can they, they can identify with. Um, what I'm what I'm trying to argue to my to my colleagues is we know that's true, but we can't. It's really hard for us to deliver that in a traditional classroom. Um, look at all the ways that online education could allow us to let students match up with the with the professors that they really resonate with, mm-hmm. and how much better an experience that could give them if they you know if they don't come from the dominant gender or the dominant race. Mm. You make an interesting point also that uh, during COVID-19, when uh, nearly all of the world of higher education had to move, in some respects kicking and screaming, yet gratefully, uh, into online delivery of, 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 of our content, uh, that uh, unless there are exceptions that I'm not aware of, we, we didn't slash our prices uh, as though we were delivering something uh, that was just you know part of an education. I mean, the, the, we we did the best that we possibly could under difficult circumstances to deliver a full, rich, abundant education, uh, albeit uh, in drastically different ways. And uh, I think you're you're calling on us to not pull away from that, but uh, but to move ahead. One thing I appreciate about your book. Uh, go ahead. Oh, oh, no, I think every, every time I give this talk about 20 minutes in, somebody, you know, a faculty member raises their hand and says, oh, no, online education won't work. And we know that because the online education we delivered during COVID was a complete disaster. Um, and and what I try to say is, you know, if that's true, A, we owe our students a huge, a huge refund. Right. You know, you, you, you can't you can't on one hand say uh, this was a disaster and yet I'm going to charge you full price. But B, recognize that we're, you know, we're going to get better with, with better tools, with more practice, with more um, uh, training. Online education is going to get better. So mm-hmm. even if what we did during COVID wasn't as high quality as what students would have gotten in the classroom, I think it could get to the point where it's, it's, it's even better particularly for students who today we leave out of the scarce mm. seats in our classroom. Right. That's the opportunity I'm trying to get my colleagues to see. Sure. One thing uh, I appreciate in your book that you acknowledge how painful this is, could be, would probably be in terms of some losses. Uh, and, and, and I appreciate the candor with which you, you include that in your discussion. You also talk about how you do not see traditional colleges and universities completely disappearing from the landscape, particularly venerable universities. There are still people who will want to go to Harvard, and there will always be a Harvard, uh, to some extent at least. Uh, mm-hmm. But so our, the last question, how do you see the landscape in terms of this new kind of higher education versus more traditional schools of higher education? Do you see them coexisting, competing with one another? Do you not see a dividing line between them? I mean, h- how do you imagine this this future world of higher education? I, I imagine one where um, higher education becomes much more, much more modular for a lot of our students. Um, you know, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, MIT, they're going to be just fine. Um, I think Carnegie Mellon is going to be just fine, uh, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, what what I'd love for us to create, though, is something online where if, if you don't have the opportunity or or the resources to attend one of those schools, 
that you still have the ability to discover your talents and develop those talents and particularly signal those talents to the marketplace. Today, the way the marketplace treats us is if you don't have a four-year degree, you're probably not that smart. Um, that's a, that's a, I think that's a very limiting way to think about this. And I'd love, for, I'd love for us to develop other ways for students to demonstrate their skills in a way that employers can, can, um, can use in the hiring process. That's, that's the shift I'm hoping for. It would have been tempting to call this book the death of the university. I don't believe that's true. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to evoke in the abundant university is an alternate path and one that has abundant access in contrast to the scarcity of the traditional university. Right. One of the chapters of your book is titled The Unjust University, Why It's Hard to Foster Inclusivity in a System Based on Exclusivity. That and much more gives us a lot to think about in your book titled The Abundant University, Remaking Higher Education for a Digital World, published by the MIT Press, and the author, uh, Professor Michael D. Smith from Carnegie Mellon University. Professor Smith, thank you so much for this book, and thank you so much for this conversation. Greg, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.